One of the biggest fears that we try and debunk with our students is this idea of I'm not funny. And the thing is, it is just not about being funny. It's about finding more reasons to have joy in your life and looking for reasons to smile. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Britt Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. Who could use a laugh today? I know I could, and that's why I'm so ready to dive into this week's topic, which is all about humor. We've got double the brain power for today's show with two incredible guests joining me to break down the science behind being funny. Behavioral scientist and Stanford professor Dr. Jennifer Ocker and Stanford lecturer Naomi Bagdonis are here to share learnings from their new book called Humor Seriously, Why Humor is a Secret Weapon in Business and Life. If you ever wanted to crack the code to comedy and learn how to harness its power in your life, keep listening to find out how. Welcome, ladies. Okay, well, I give that intro a 10 out of 10. Yes, I give it 11 out of 10. Gold stars, gold stars. Not because I'm competitive with Naomi, because it really (laughs) was outstanding. (laughs) Thank you. So I want to start with you, Jennifer. People might be thinking, how can a behavioral scientist teach me anything about comedy? So what got you so interested in learning about humor to begin with? Okay, so first of all, um, I... I'm not a funny person, nor do I necessarily want to be, not because I can't, (laughs) I can, damn it, but because it was just never a value growing up, you know, as a behavioral scientist, like, you know, I liked laughter. I just never prioritized it, you know, what was important. It was research, writing, and getting shit done. Really good at productivity. Um, And that view for me fundamentally changed in 2010, because as you know, Britt, I wrote this book, The Dragonfly Effect, with my husband, Andy, about the power of story and social networks to drive positive change in the world. I don't know if you remember this, but Andy and I ended up working with this Stanford student group called 100,000 Cheeks, applying the tools of the, from the book to this goal of getting over 100,000 people into the bone marrow registry. And you helped at Google, and we had friends at other social networks that were helping us as well. And so we ended up working with actually 17 families. Just everything about the the movement was, you know, done with levity and humor. And that's what got me really motivated in studying this. Mm. And Naomi, you also have a pretty extensive comedy background. So you've been an improv teacher, and you've even coached celebrities before they go on Saturday Night Live, not to mention formal training from the Upright Citizens Brigade, which is like the program that almost every major comedian goes through, if I'm not Many do. Yeah, it was um, started by Amy Poehler and Matt Walsh and um, Matt Besser and um, yeah, so it's, it's a, it's an incredible school. I so, say that not because I went there. I say that because it was a dream to go there. Like my whole dream, my whole life, I always wanted to take classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade. And so I uprooted my life and I moved there because it had always been my dream. It's, it's a really magical place. Can anyone go there? Can I go take classes there? Yes, you can. And you should. So how did you guys find each other and decide to pursue studying humor? 
Well, so my orientation and background towards humor was kind of the opposite of Jennifer's, where, you know, she says that she didn't prioritize it her whole life. She sort of was skeptical about the power of it. And for me, it was my whole life. And this is not to say that I was funny, but this is to say that I really, really prioritized laughter in my life. Um, I was voted class clown of my high school. And even, um, you know, those senior quotes when everyone is quoting Gavin DeGraw, like, you know, sometimes the only way is jumping. I hope you're not afraid of heights. Um, Mine was the most wasted day is that in which we have not laughed. And so this was so deeply ingrained in me. And yet what I what happened was when I went to work, um, you know, in my early 20s, I started um, I completely lost my sense of humor at work because I thought that I had to be uh, bring this certain persona to the office every day. And that persona was serious and put together and austere and absolutely not humorous at all. So I had this interaction with a client where we had worked together for a very long time. And one Friday, she said, Bonnie said to me, um, you know, Naomi, I, I bet I know what you do on Fridays. I bet you basically like go home, watch the History Channel and do nothing fun. And by the way, I don't think I've ever seen you laugh at work. So she wow. told me, I don't think I've ever seen you laugh. And it was You're like, moment. I'm the class clown, yo. I was like, uh, do you know who I was when I was 16? <laughs> totally. <laughs> so um, so it was this, but it was this really um important moment where I realized I was living this double life. And um, and so I set out to merge those two lives. I realized I was out of sync in my job, out of sync in my life. And so how do I do both? How do I do well at my job and also have more joy at work? Um, So as part of merging those two lives, right when I was trying that out is when I met Jennifer and uh, I had come to guest lecture in a class of hers at Stanford. And I was trying out all these things where I was like, what if I bring humor into, you know, into my talks? What if I um, what if I try and be funny in a professional context? And so when she and I um, debriefed that class we ended up, you know, it was supposed to be a 20-minute debrief. We ended up in a four-hour digression about how humor is going to save the world. And then here we are six years later, having taught a class at Stanford about it for five years and having written a book. Wow. And I, I've i only dabbled. I remember there was a humor boot camp you guys might have done together a couple years ago. We did. We played with so many boot camps and we actually finessed it enough. So we have a boot camp if you go to humorseriously.com. There is a three-week boot camp where um, it's a text-based boot camp where people actually get little texts every morning for like a few minutes and kind of coaching on cultivating humor. But when we coaxed you into our boot camp for a week, um, you know, it was kind of a mini version of our class and you were spectacular. I remember distinctly that you put out there that someday you're going to do stand-up. So that's why I I ask about the Upright Citizens Brigade, because I'm not joking. It's on my bucket list. That's right. Yeah, we find that it's really important to keep up these habits, not just like learn these tools from, you know, comedians, um, not just being able to get a window into these different activities that cultivate it in the short run. But you need to kind of have this continuous coaching to really make it last. Is everyone humorous <laughs> or just some of us get blessed with like some sort of a gene that makes us funny people. So this is a one of the biggest fears that we try and debunk with our students is this idea of I'm not funny. 
And the thing is, it is just not about being funny. It's about finding more reasons to have joy in your life and looking for reasons to smile. So um, so I would say first, yes, everyone has a sense of humor. It's, it's a fundamental part of how you um, process the world, how you interact with the world. And what we find is that for a lot of adults, that sense of humor has atrophied. You can think of it like a muscle. Right? And so if you don't use it, then you're going to experience atrophy. And when you try to use it, it's going to feel kind of hard and maybe it's going to be a little bit painful. So what, as Jennifer mentioned, we try and do these little exercises, right? Little things like at the end of each day for a week, write down three funny things that happened that day. And what the power of this is when you set out to look for something in your life, when you set out to measure something or notice it, then you will find more of it. So on day one, that's going to be really hard. Three funny things. You're going to be like, I don't know, my cat purred in a weird way. And then by day seven, you're going to be like, oh, person at the park, you know, was looking at their phone and they had a weird expression on their face. Uh, my partner did this thing in the kitchen and I came up behind him and, you know, put a post-it on the counter that said something. You know, you're going to have all these examples because you start to create more of them. Um, so, yes, everyone has a sense of humor and it's a muscle that we just need to be working out more. And why should we work this muscle out? What are the benefits of humor that you guys have discovered in your research? Well, one of the things that's so remarkable is there's a myriad of benefits, not just for mental health and, you know, physical health, but also at work. Um, It's a completely under leveraged, underappreciated tool. So a few statistics. When people use humor at work, and it doesn't even need to be good humor, it just has to be not inappropriate humor they are 23% more respected and um, seen as more competent and confident. Employees who rate their bosses as having a sense of humor, any a sense of humor. This is different than like, is your boss funny? This isn't about funny. This isn't about trying to be funny. This is about having a sense of humor. Report to be 15% more satisfied and engaged in their jobs. And they rate their bosses as 27% more motivating and admired. So if you're not into being motivating or admired or having engaged employees, there is still a role of humor in your cold, cold heart. Um, and that's increased <laughs> customers' willingness to pay. Um, oh, if you, now I I'm know, listening. Now. <laughs> so it's a sales tactic too. It <laughs> is. And you make more money. I mean, not like we need money or want money or whatever. That's materialistic. But if you do... <laughs> You might think Just about in case you might want more money. <laughs> a, light, a lighthearted line, which is funny because, you know, you go to business school and people are like, oh, I'm going to maximize profitability or I'm going to go build a nonprofit, et cetera. And so they come into our class and they learn that just a lighthearted line, like I'm negotiating with you and I'm going to throw in my pet frog. You know, again, it's not funny. It's just a lighthearted line. Those individuals who do that enjoy 18% more money when they negotiate with people. It's a it's an enormously powerful tool for negotiations. And part of this is because when you throw in that lighthearted line or even laugh together, like we did at the beginning, people feel 30% more intimate. Um, And even reminiscing about moments of shared laughter make people say that they are 23% more satisfied in their relationship. So think about this with you and Dave, the moments that you shared laughter together, like you and Dave were belly laughing, maybe with the kids. Okay, so that's one condition. And then I'm going to ask you, okay, remember moments where you and Dave were really happy together. In those two conditions, which seem very similar, they reveal remarkably different results. 
in the first condition where I asked you to think of, you know, belly laughing with Dave, um, people say that they are 23% happier in their relationship, you know, which is stunning because it's free and it's just remembering shared laughter. You know, we go to therapy, we do all these things. um, And yet these are huge, huge effect sizes that we find. Um, By the way, before Naomi kind of under, you know, basically unpacks the neurology or the neuroscience behind it. Um, what came to mind when I asked you the last moment you had shared belly laughter with Dave and the family? <laughs> to be honest, we do this thing called leg wrestling. It's not sexual. Um, <laughs> but I grew up playing soccer and I have like fairly strong legs, but Dave was a ski racer. He has strong legs too. And I I definitely get that he has stronger arms than me, but we lay on our backs and we put our like legs up and we almost arm wrestle with our legs and I, we just like try to knock each other over and like our kids have started doing it with us too. And if you walked into my house when my family was leg wrestling, you would be like, there's physical abuse happening here. I don't know what's going on. Child services. I don't know. (laughs) I crack up every time because it's so funny and I don't know. Does that count? Is that a good one? It absolutely counts. That not only counts, that far surpasses any expectation that we could have possibly had. That gets a 12 out of 10. You guys are just stroking my ego over and over again, and I'm getting really embarrassed by it. (laughs) Also, I love the idea of of, um, like now in our coaching, we go back to our Stanford class and we're like, okay, so, you know, we have three techniques. Number one, uh, you know, look for more joy, write down three funny things. Number two, and then number three is leg wrestling. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so humor is really powerful for work, for, for our sales, for our interpersonal relationships. Um, and I did have a question around how men and women express humor differently because you always hear this stat, like when people are dating, like a woman will be like, I'm so attracted to him. He's so funny. Mm-hmm. But I feel like men are like very attracted to a woman who's hot, <laughs> you know, or, or whatever. Do you find differences in male and female attraction to humor? And who laughs more easily. By the way, there was one study that showed that in terms of dating, having a sense of humor is one of the, one of the top characteristics for both men and for women, actually. But when you dig into that and you ask, what does a sense of humor mean? Then you find exactly what you said, Britt, which is for, for women, he really makes me laugh. And for men... She really laughs at my jokes. <laughs> so funny. So the key so, is women just laugh a lot and you'll be yes. happy in your dating life. <laughs> sort of. I mean, that's obviously not totally true. And I can speak for probably all of us that I would say our partners probably really appreciate how we make them laugh as well. Um, but we do actually find these differences in how men versus women tend to express humor. So through our years of, of research, we've done a ton of studies that show there are four broad humor styles that people tend to fall into. And those are the magnet, the sniper, the stand-up, and the sweetheart. 
And so each of these styles expresses their humor in slightly different ways. I'll do a very quick run through of them. So there's the, um, we'll start with the standup. So the standup is sort of um, uh, bold, outgoing, not afraid to ruffle feathers to get a good laugh. They're not afraid to, you know, dive into a roast. Um, you probably already know who this persona is. Then you've got the uh, magnet. So magnets are also tend to be more outgoing, but they're sort of warm, positive, uplifting humor, humor that brings us together. Uh, think of like a like a Jimmy Fallon, right? And then you have the sniper. So snipers, as you might imagine, are sarcastic, edgy, dry, um, more understated and a little bit more reserved with their humor. They sort of sit back and wait for the perfect one-liner and then they get in there and it's it's a great singer. And then you've got the sweetheart. So the sweetheart, similar to the sniper, they tend to be a bit more reserved with their humor, but they are, they're earnest, they're honest. They use humor that uplifts, um, that brings people together. They don't love the spotlight, so you kind of have to listen closely when you have a sweetheart around, but they actually are quite funny. So before we go any further and I tell you about gender differences, what do you think you are? Well, I already took this test before yes. this episode, and I want to know what do you think I am? Because you've only known me for about 20 minutes now. Okay. I'm going to say that you are a magnet. Jennifer, what do you think? I agree, and I've known her for a lot longer. See how diagnostic this <laughs> quiz is. Well, you'll be happy to know that I'm a magnet, and I feel... <laughs> Really proud of myself that I'm not a sniper, frankly. Like <laughs> So, and by the way, leg wrestling, just a total tell that you're a magnet. Really? <laughs> so, I mean, not really, but, um, oh. but magnets <laughs> tend to find sort of more goofy, outgoing. So what we find through this data is, in general, we find a higher distribution of men who fall into the stand-up and sniper humor styles and a higher distribution of women who fall into the magnet and sweetheart styles, especially when they're talking about how they use humor at work. So the part of why this is so important is each of these styles has unique strengths and also has unique pitfalls, especially if you think about using them at work. So the stand-up and the sniper, for example, those are the ones who tend to over-index um, with, with men, is they are bold, they're they're really good at speaking truth to things that are kind of hard to broach without humor. But be because they are so bold, because they don't mind roasting and teasing, they can alienate or offend if they use it in the wrong context or if they're the highest status person in the room and they're, and they're what we call punching down, which is they're making fun of someone of lower status. On the other side of the spectrum, we tend to find um, the magnets and sweethearts because they use humor to uplift, because they use it so effectively to bond people together, they can offer often over-index on self-deprecation. So they, they because they want to lift other people up, they'll sometimes tear themselves down or make self-deprecating jokes. Now, this is important because women, especially who are um, in lower status roles in an organization, if they over-index on humor, it can actually take away their status. Now, by the way, the opposite is true, where if you are the most senior person in the room, if you're the CEO and you use um, self-deprecating humor, it can actually be power enhancing because it shows that you're mm. not afraid to take a joke and, um, you know, and so, and shows some humility as well. What if you're the CEO and you are a sniper or stand up and then people get really offended? That's, so that doesn't so, sound good either. So it's a great it's a great question. We have um, one of our. Uh, former students is named Steve Reardon, and he's a serial entrepreneur. He's been the CEO of multiple companies, and he's a, and he's a stand-up uh, with a side of sniper. 
So he does he does a couple of things. Number one, he distributes a working with me 101 to all of his employees at like early, early in the relationship. And one of the important things about his leadership style and principles is about his humor style. So he says, I'm a stand up. If I make fun of you, it's because I really like you. So that's step one. Step two is he really curbs that style until he knows the person well. So he actively will lean into magnet or sweetheart style humor until he gets to know someone a little bit better. I like that. Okay. I like the working with me 101. I feel like that's a really useful thing to do. And I know that you also taught how to write your bio, like on LinkedIn or on a cover letter or a resume. What are some of the tips you could give our listeners about how to up-level the way they present themselves on paper, either to their team at work or to new types of people if they're you know job searching right now? Right. So let me give you the um, example and then um, Naomi can unpack the process maybe. So what we find is, you know, our students often take themselves very seriously, especially in their bio. We all do. And so um, it's a really great um, place to start kind of playing, inserting just a line of levity, a really subtle line. So I'll give you an example and then um, maybe um, Naomi can talk about like how you do it so our listeners can do it. But, you know, for mine, you know, I have a very long title and I've published a lot of research that's very, very important. <laughs> um, so I talk at length about, you know, that important research. But at the end, I always end with, you know, she counts winning a dance off in the early 1980s uh, among her most impressive feats and her abbreviated cooking skills have earned her family DoorDash platinum status. Um, now, I don't know how good the abbreviated cooking skills um, joke is, but people love the 1980s um, dance off. And that inevitably leads to stories about, you know, how you actually win a dance off. How do you know you want a dance off? And what Especially does a dance off 80s, look like? the 80s, by the way. I'm just wondering what you were wearing in the dance off. Like how, what neon scrunchie was in your hair? I was, was not, it was not only in my hair, Britt. It was on my, it was my shirt. I had a neon, <laughs> I had a neon tangerine and a neon lime green blouse that my girlfriend, my freshman roommate, Renee, and I would share so um, we would only have one and we'd share it back and forth without washing it. But that <laughs> defined the 80s. I think we just need to really focus, though, on my dance, dancing skills mm. because um, versus the clothes. Because when you're really into the skills, you know, the clothes don't matter. Right. The point here being <laughs> is that just that lighthearted line is enough to at least provoke conversation. All right, so let me do a quick recap of what Jennifer did in her bio and what people can do. So number one is strike the right balance. This is where a humorous bio shouldn't be any less impressive and serious and badass than your current bio. It should just have a little bit of levity with it. And so Jennifer, as she mentioned, had her long list of accolades and then she had a little bit of humor. Second thing, end on levity. So save your punchline right till the end. And this is partly because misdirection is key to getting laughs. So no one will see it coming after you have a, a series of impressive qualifications, um, which of course she did. And then she saved that surprising part until the end. And then lastly, choose your content strategically. So oftentimes if people are thinking, oh, what funny thing can I put in the end? They sort of just grasp for anything that's funny. But instead think about 
Um, what are some details that you want to showcase that are personally important, fun to tell stories about, um, you know, maybe impressive, maybe they mitigate some perceptions that people might have about you. Um, so all of those things can be fodder for what content you want to choose. I love that. So that's how we can write about ourselves when we're putting together our bio. What about if I'm like on a first job interview, like how funny should I be? How do I even do that if I don't feel like I'm a funny person? Is it? The, do you use the same tips and tricks when you're talking in person? So when you're in a job interview, the best thing to do is wear your neon shirt and <laughs> and a scrunchie and your scrunchie and just try to dance. And it's actually easier than you would think to find opportunities to spontaneously dance. Your improv teacher skills just came out so well right there. (laughs) So, you know, one of the most powerful things we can do to signal that we have a sense of humor is be more generous with our laughter. And so there inevitably in moments of conversation are opportunities for us to signal that to other people. And we talk about how laughter is a fundamental melody of human conversation, right? We all we all know what the tune is. When we hear it, it's really easy to sing along. And so when you're in a job interview, rather than sort of being on your front, you know, being on your toes, trying to crack jokes, sometimes the more effective thing to do can be to just look for little opportunities of levity and and lean into them, laugh about it. Um, Or what we would tell people um, in person, and this works in Zoom too, is ask some questions about what you see in their background, right? Is there a picture of their um, of their kid on the desk? Is there a um, an award on the wall? And what happens is these windows into people's humanity, right? Break break them out of their role as whatever boss interviewing you for whatever role, and and unlock some portion of their humanity. And when you start talking on that level, then you start communicating like friends, and laughter will come more easily. Laughter is something so intriguing to me because Mm. I feel like maybe it's contagious. This is a thing I've heard. I don't know. B, I feel like I don't like the way my laugh sounds. Can I change it? (laughs) And there are different sounds of laughter. And now I'm like self-critiquing me as I laugh about myself. And then C, (laughs) speaking of which, should I laugh at myself? Because every time I watch a great stand-up special, it's because they're not laughing at themselves when they're being funny. Who wants to take those in which order? Okay, I will take the first one. So this question is, is laughter really contagious? Um, And the answer is yes, that basically, you know, there's these adages like, you know, laugh and the whole world will laugh with you. And the question is sort of, is that true? So what happens is the sound of laughter triggers a response in the brain. It's, you know, one of the reasons why the laugh track is still sort of around or kind of around in the 1980s, it was around. Um, and the 90s, by the way. I miss the laugh track. <laughs> I feel like that was such a good thing. Oh, Naomi and I like to play the laugh track. And, you know, pretty much whenever we just have like a killer joke that we thought was great and then it bombs. And then we just kind of hack our way through <laughs> totally. inserting the laugh track. Anyway. Um, Actually, yeah, that's a, that's a great tip for anyone trying to give a presentation <laughs> on Zoom and making a joke. It's the best thing you can do is just have a laugh track queued up. And if you mm-hmm. if you make a joke and it you get complete silence, just play the laugh track. Actually, Zoom should be building this in as a feature, but they don't have it right now. However, there's an app called Ecam Live, I think, that 
has a laugh track in it and, and emits through Zoom. So if you want to hack it, you can do it that way. Okay, we will Pro tip. that. Yeah. Tip. Oh my goodness, so good. But, um, you know, the other thing is that it, when you laugh, it preps these muscles, you know, the muscles in the face, you know, to basically join in. And there's a thing called physical mimicry where you, especially for highly empathic individuals, when they see certain um, behavior, it actually makes sense to mimic their gestures. Anyway, I digress. The point here being that laughter is contagious. You are correct. Okay, I'll, I'll take the second part, which is should I laugh while making a joke? <clears throat> and so this is actually a, this is one of the characteristics that teases apart our different styles. So magnets tend to laugh really easily while they're making a joke. And snipers tend to be totally deadpan while they deliver a joke. So first, it's really uh, linked to your style. And now should you do it? I would argue I'm also a magnet. So I would say, <clears throat> yes, in general, if your goal is to create connection, then uh, it's a good thing to laugh while you're delivering your joke for a couple of reasons. One, Jennifer just talked about con social contagion, right? So if we laugh, then it's more likely that other people will laugh as well. And the reason number two, the reason that that is so powerful is because of how laughter changes our brains. So when we laugh, our brains release this cocktail of hormones. We release dopamine, which makes us happier. We release oxytocin, which makes us more trusting um, of the person that we're with. We release endorphins, so we get a little runner's high. We suppress the release of cortisol, so we feel less stressed and uh, less in that fight or flight, flight mode. So what that means is when we tell a joke ourselves and we're laughing and the other person laughs along with us, our brains are firing at the same time with these same powerful hormones that are telling, um, are telling us really important things. They're telling us, you know, oh, wow, Brit, I really trust you. Brit, I really like this interaction. I'm getting pleasure from this interaction. And this, is, this feels safe because I feel not stressed right now. Um, and so then we get all those benefits that Jennifer was talking about, where people rate interactions as more intimate. They're willing to self-disclose more. We know that people are more creative. Um, so again, as a magnet, I am predisposed to laughing while, um, while telling jokes. But I also think, but not I think, there is also certainly research that backs up why that is a really powerful technique, especially when it comes to bonding. Mm. And what about if you don't like your laugh? <laughs> I feel like I have a quiet laugh. Did you just hear it? Should I just practice like <laughs> instead of like instead of my laugh right now is like <laughs> it's like so lame. I hate my laugh. Can I change it? What's that is so funny because I would I register right like I register your laugh as being warm, inviting, uh, very, very contagion inducing. Oh, okay. So thank you. Jennifer, though, you think differently. Let's no, I think it's the fa most fascinating question because um, uh, because if, if it's true, if one of the implications of this research is simply being more generous with your laughter, it'd be very nice if you liked the sound of your own laughter. I think the key is own your laughter, right? Mm -hmm. Like yes. screw people who don't like your laughter, including yourself. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Oh. I do think there's also two types of laughter. There's the normal laughter. And then there's like you're talking about the belly laughter. I remember watching funny movies with my dad as a little girl and when he laughs he goes <laughs> and he starts crying and <laughs> it makes me giggle when my dad's laughing so strangely and my husband laughs like this 
And like, I just think it's hilarious that we all have this different laughter. And it's one of the things we can't, we can't program into ourselves. Like we can change the way we speak. We can, you know, change our bios. We can do all these different things. But that's such an innate part of us that is never changeable. Totally. And I love, I love what Jennifer said at the end of own it. Just commit. And this is like a broader principle that's so relevant in improv, that's relevant in what we teach at Stanford, that's relevant in in stand-up is commit. People will respect you and like you for the commitment. So if you're holding back your laugh or you're trying to change it, then that's where it sort of starts to feel disingenuous. But whatever is whatever genuinely is coming out of you when you are laughing, do that thing. Okay, let's talk about how to tell a good joke. Is there any right or wrong way to go about this? Do we need to think through this? Let's say we have a joke that we want to tell you. Should everyone have a go-to joke? I I feel like some people do this who are really successful in life where they just like have a story or a joke that gets repurposed over and over again as an icebreaker. Should people have signature jokes? You know, we rather whether or not we want to, many of us have signature stories and signature jokes from our lives. And comedians, it's easy to look at them on stage and hear them deliver the perfect um, one-liner. Or I was watching Bo and Yang uh, doing stand-up last night, and I was just, man, his timing is amazing. That story is so funny. And it's easy to think, wow, he, he just has perfect comedic timing, and he's just pulling that out of thin air. And the reality is, by the time you see any of those comedians on stage, they have done that joke hundreds of times. They've told that story hundreds or thousands of times and they've perfected it. And so, and we do the same thing, that we know that there are those stories we love telling at dinner parties and they come up every so often, or, um, you know, those those lines about our life that we find ourselves saying over and over again without really meaning to. But there's something about cataloging them and really recognizing, hey, this is this is something that I can use to actually bring myself closer to someone, even in a job interview, that can be really powerful. Um, And the second thing I'll say is, you know, people often think that humor is about inventing something from thin air. And more often, it's just about naming what's true. And so what we have our students do is jot down observations from their life. It can be anything like, um, uh, I I do this funny, I do this weird thing with my husband where we leg wrestle. Uh, Or it can be, um, you know, I... uh, my husband always walks in on my, you know, my video conferences, like at the exact moment when I'm supposed to be presenting, which by the way, Jennifer's husband does that frequently and it's the best. Um, or, you know, any of these observations. And then once you have those observations, you can use some really simple techniques from comedians for crafting them into something that's funny. So some of those are exaggeration, contrast, rule of three. Um, and actually, the one that I would love to give right here, because we've used it so many times on this podcast, is the callback. So mm. callbacks are the easiest way to get a laugh in a group of people. And all you do is you make a reference back to a moment that we've already laughed together. Right. And we've done that a couple of times, right? We've done the um, legs callback. We did the 80s callback. And it does a couple of things. One, people recognize it. And so it, it reactivates that, um, that laughter. And two, it makes us feel like we are an in-group. So it makes us feel, okay, we now have an inside joke. It makes us feel even closer. 
Um, so callbacks, I mean, the we have a whole chapter in the book of how do you mine your life and apply exaggeration, contrast, rule of three, all of these other things. Um, but the one that I think is most accessible and easy for people is just um, is just looking for callbacks. I see that all the time in stand-up, but it seems to be the most highly used. And I agree with you. The callback is a way to run a meeting, potentially. You start with something maybe, especially if you're running the meeting, um, mm-hmm. as a way to introduce the meeting, a funny thing that happened to you. Then you can go into like, okay, but this is all what's going on with this project I'm working on, blah, 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 blah. And as you're wrapping it up, like, and now back to my like three-legged dog over here that like can't, I don't know, something. I don't want to make fun of a dog, but um <laughs> Especially not a three-legged one. Not a three-legged dog. Sorry, sorry. Bad, bad callback. But I know what you're saying, and I think that makes so much sense, and it sort of leaves you with levity at the end, which is also what you said. You have to leave the person with levity as the last thing, right, even if you're serious beforehand. Yeah, totally. So as people are thinking about these observations, we talk about look for these very specific areas in your life. So one would be contrast, and contrast would be um, and we also call this incongruity, right? So um, is there is there an area in your life that contradicts another area of your life? Or do you act in a very different way than your partner or something like that? Sarah Cooper has a great, um, she had a great comic that was, uh, it was entitled Two Types of Travelers. And on the left side, you have a guy standing over his suitcase exclaiming, uh, I brought an extra European adapter if anyone needs one. And then on the right side, you have a woman exclaiming, oh my God, I forgot to pack underwear again, right? So number one is just look for contrast in your life. And then another one that feels accessible to people is just pay attention to um, your uh, the opinions that you hold more strongly than other people. So just um, what do you think is weird that other people don't? Or what do you think is funnier than other people? Or you know, any of these things, right? So this is just like yeah. saying what's true and saying what's odd. So a couple of tips. I love it. I love it. Um, so I know we're wrapping up our time together soon. One question I had was in a world of Zoom and who knows how much longer we'll be not seeing each other in person, are there different tips you would give to us living in our virtual lives than you would when we're physically together in person? Yeah, I mean, some of it is um, some of it is the recognition that the bar is the bar was low before. The bar is even lower now. And, you know, to offset your risks, you can, you know, explore, you know, humor in chat functions um, or private chat functions. It doesn't always have to be um, verbal. Um, It also certainly depends. And if you're leading the team um, versus not. um, But we just actually got off um, a, a talk with. Um, uh, Salesforce, the chief vice president of HR, I think I'm not sure exactly her title, but she had all of these props, Britt, right behind her. Like, I kid you not. She had wigs. She had glasses. She had like a rating score of one to 10. So she could say, Britt, what you just said was a 13 out of 10. Um, and it was, it just, it wasn't, it was maybe a little goofy, a little silly, but People were so thirsty for a little bit of humanity um, and an ability to feel energy through the digital format. Um, another friend of ours who actually teaches with us, uh, whose name is Connor Dimignaman, is um, a serial entrepreneur. And he recently joined a large nonprofit called Merit America as their co-CEO. And a few months ago, it was his first all-hands Zoom call. 
And it, it was scheduled during this incredibly challenging time in the world and a particularly divisive time in the U.S. So if you think about him, he wanted to acknowledge the hardship of that moment while assuring care and reassurance. So during the call, he was sharing his screen. So imagine he's sharing the screen. And when it's time for someone else to speak, he pretended to leave his screen share on accidentally. And so everyone could see him and they're all holding you know, their breath watching him. And he went to Google and he typed in things inspirational CEOs say in hard times. And everyone lost it. It was this beautiful moment of levity and signaling of vulnerability in this totally unexpected and funny way. And it was intentional. You know, and then he doubled down on it. Like he started talking from the actual script and it wasn't hard and it was free and it was throwing in a pet frog. And it had a very real upside for Connor in terms of perceptions of status, of competence, of confidence, of having a sense of humor. So more motivation, more engagement. It is such an under leveraged, underappreciated tool. It is remarkable. What's the one piece of homework or advice you can give our listeners this week as it relates to cultivating their own humor style? My advice would be practice navigating your life on the precipice of a smile. Feel what it feels like to go through your day and expect to be delighted rather than disappointed. That's I know it's a little bit broad, but that would be my advice. And if you really like tactical homework, then it would be for one week, write down three funny things at the end of each day. (laughs) And my advice would be big picture you know, figure out your own authentic humor style, force your kids to do it too. You will start to laugh at their jokes so much more authentically. Their esteem will skyrocket because you think that they're funny. It bonds a family in no other way. And my last tactical tip would be just sign off with anything but best. Just like best is the worst. All you have to do just to have a little bit of, you know, humanity and humor in your life is just do a callback like Naomi mentioned or reference something that they said. Again, it doesn't even have to be like laugh out loud funny, just something that proves you're not a robot. It will change your life in surprisingly dramatic ways. Yeah. And sometimes I just use an emoji and then put Brit like, by the way, I've decided that the emoji is the version of me laughing at myself as I try to make a joke, whereas the sniper or the stand up would never use an emoji after they make a one-liner in an email or a text message. So I'm pro-emoji, and I feel like everyone listening should should use emojis if they want to, especially to sign off on an email. Love <laughs> um, that. Well, thank you guys so much for being here today. Your book just dropped this week. It's called Humor Seriously. I'm assuming we can buy it wherever books are sold. Is that correct? That's right. And is there a website we can direct everyone to? humorseriously.com, which is also where you can go to take the humor styles quiz. And can our children take the humor styles quiz? How young can you be? It's totally PG-13 because that's the way we roll, PG-13. Yes, you absolutely can. Great. Well, I'm going to do it for my whole family because like you said, it will bond us like no other. Thank you, Jennifer Acker and Naomi Bagdonis. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for making me a more funny person. Thank you, Britt, for having us. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. 
Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Ali Ives and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjaycee and Aaron Peterson. 